What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Inking Out Loud for today, episode 44. We're finally wrapping up our discussion of Lord of Chaos, the sixth volume in Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And we have returning special guest, the Don, Jared Livingston. <laughs> Jared! Jared? <laughs> These Jared, just get up, better buddy? and better. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I just thought of another one today, actually. I almost wrote it down. Uh, but I, well, I did write it down, but that's going to be for either next time we have you on or the time after that, because I have a few good ideas. But anyway, <laughs> ladies and gents, servants and guardians, let's pass this off to Drew so that we can get a recap of what we just read. Drew, Lord of Chaos, finish it off for us, bud. Yeah, so we, we didn't have a whole lot to read at the end of this because we did a longer segment for part two. Mm-hmm. But what we did read here was pretty dang good. We have Perrin's uh, arrival in Camelin and subsequent journey to Kyrien, uh, you know, chasing Rand. We have Matt and his uh, brief time in Saladar before the choice is made to send Matt and Elaine and Nynaeve and Adelius and Van Deen and some of the Red Arms to Ebudar to search for the Bowl of the Winds. And most importantly, Rand meets with the Saladar Embassy. Some sparks fly there because of a uh, purported Aiel attack on one of the Aes Sedai. Bera and Karuna show up, giving their number, uh, their, their little Embassy 13 Aes Sedai in total, so Rand is not down with that, and he travels to Kyrien. Not down with that. Uh, and uh, in Kyrien, he meets with the Tower Embassy and is captured, because they also brought... Well, more than 13 Aes Sedai. I believe the number it was, was 15. 15. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they they shield him, capture him, stuff him in a, in a chest, in a box, and Ayo. head back to Tarvalon. But thanks to some sleuthing by uh, Perrin and Sulin, they, uh, everybody back in Kyrian figures out that Rand has been kidnapped. They give chase. Perrin summons the wolves. Uh, Taim shows up with the Ashaman, and we have the Battle of Dumai's Wells, which I think that's all I really need to say there. <laughs> yeah, not much more is needed. <clears throat> yeah. I so. mean, I'm getting chills talking about reading about it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Oh, my God. I have been waiting so long to record this podcast. We've had a few weeks uh, in between while we've been uh, dealing with, you know, personal stuff happening in our lives. And we finally got back down to it. I am so glad that we finally get the chance to talk about the Battle of Dumai's Wells because it was so freaking cool. Um, but, but, like, before we dive too much into what exactly happened there, I, st- I still think we should stick to our regular structure. I, I do want to have a-, a couple of talking points about Jordan's style, a couple of things that I've noticed have... Uh, that he pulled off that I actually really liked. Um, okay. So starting, um, I wanted to, to highlight this really expert narrative sort of switcheroo that Jordan pulls. Um, because as you just said, Drew, we had Rand. He's waiting in Kyrian for the like, the Camelin slash Rebel. Wait, Kyrian, sorry. Uh, oh, yeah, for the Camelin and Rebel Tower yeah. like Aes Sedai to catch him up. And there in Kyrian, his plans start coming together. And he's preparing to secure the loyalty of the Rebel Aes Sedai. And he's planning, I think, on using them to, like, in his strike on Samael in Ilion. 
Um, we have uh-huh. Perrin's refusal to lead that army in Tyr, and then we have Matt's sudden, you know, side quest. We have Rand meeting with Ruark, you know, leading to him finally stop, you know, he's finally stop spending, spending, sending the spears south. And then we have the imminent arrival of the Saladar Aes Sedai, and it seems like Rand's schemes are slowly but inevitably co- like coming to fruition. And then the pattern closes that proverbial right hand and then smacks him with the left one instead. It was yep. so wonderfully done. And I wanted to point out that even six books in, and on arguably the largest and most epic installment yet, uh, perhaps in the entire series, Jordan still doesn't fall into anything even remotely resembling predictability. Right? Yeah. And, and so one of the things I wanted to talk about as far as his you know, writing craft goes uh, in this part of the book is foreshadowing and obviously foreshadowing is something people are going to focus on a lot in the wheel of time because we have things like the prophecies and men's viewings and and the various dreams from the dreamers and stuff like that but that's a little bit different uh foreshadowing than what i'm getting at here okay and that is uh this sort of thematic foreshadowing and how rand's uh character arc just in this small segment and this is one of the reasons I wanted to like separate it out into the three chunks we did, is that uh, Rand kicks off the segment meeting with the Saladar Embassy, and then you know finding out about Vera and Karuna and all of this stuff, and he's like, okay, 13 Aes Sedai, way too dangerous, I'm out. Mm. And he goes to Kyrian, where he falls into a trap laid by 13 plus Aes Sedai. So this expectation, this threat is presented by Robert Jordan with the 13 Aes Sedai, you know, something Rand cannot deal with. And uh, and it's it's set up, but when that uh, promise is fulfilled, when that particular Chekhov's gun is taken down off the mantle in this book, it's from an unexpected direction. It's not from the direction that uh, Robert Jordan made it seem it was going to come from, you know? So we have this sort of thematic foreshadowing but it's not in the like really straightforward plot sense that we get with a lot of the like prophecies and dreams and things like that. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Jared, what do you think, man? I mean, I think some of that is reflected with Min too, where she sees uh, some of this stuff coming, but she doesn't know when. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that these ominous auras, definitely. And so it's just hanging around, but we don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah, and that's <clears> part of the reason why Rand was so quick to, to jump the gun and be like, I, I'm going to head out because there's 13 Aes Sedai in the city here, and Min is telling me that she sees an aura that I'm going to be hurt by women who can channel. You know, it looks like two and two are going to equal four here, and I guess they technically do, but this is not the four we're looking at, right? <laughs> Um, right, I, th- yeah. I thought it was I thought it was really, really well done. I, w- I didn't quite appreciate, you know, how clever... Um, Jordan was being when I first read this book and when I, I suppose when I second and third and up to my 10th and 20th times reading it um, but lately I really have you know had the opportunity to, to dive in and, and dissect Jordan's style and take a closer look and I can just say that this like I said I mean I, I'm repeating myself now but it was phenomenal it was perfect and he's just he's a master of his craft yeah and and uh, the other Chekhov's gun of course that comes down off the mantle in this segment is uh, the collective Ashaman. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, will will start saying it's around this time in the series that things slow down. Right? That the series starts getting a little bloated, we get all these side quests and things like that. But when we look at the pacing of these promises that that Robert Jordan makes in Lord of Chaos, it's like 
the Ashaman are established in what chapter forty-five, and then, like ten chapters later, boom, the Ashaman are in battle. Yeah, and and this other you know threat with the thirteen eyes Sedai is established in in what was it like chapter forty-seven, forty-eight, and in like chapter fifty-one or fifty-two, whatever, like it happens. You know, Rand is taken. Uh, it, it's it's really fast paced with some of these promises of plot development uh, in in the latter part of Lord of Chaos. Yep. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about the best endings to books in the Wheel of Time, lots of people are going to bring up Lord of Chaos because of the Battle of Doom as well. And, and rightly so. It's a you know, cinematic set piece. It's a crazy battle. It fulfills all of these promises. But it's also the events surrounding and leading up to Doom as well as that make the ending of this book so great and so powerful. Agreed. Totally agreed. Um, the last style discussion point that I had to write down here <clears throat> was about chapter 43 in particular. I think it was 43. It's called The Crown of Roses. Yes. And I thought it was, again, really interesting the way that Jordan continues to bring new characters into point of view. Um, we immediately have Mirana. And she's, she's talking to Varen, and she says that the others in their delegation have also been approaching the nobles of Camelin. And then we, yeah, yeah. we get exactly that. We have this switching between brief scenes where we have uh, Karen Sedai, Kyron Karen Sedai. She's talking to Dylan. Yeah. yeah, and she and she says that Elaine is, or she at least intimates that Elaine is going to have the throne of Andor. And we switch to Raffaella, who's speaking to Lord Luan. And she's describing the benefits of, of Rand leaving the city. And then we have um, Elorian asking Demira Sedai. You know, who's, okay, then who's going to have the Lion Throne? And Demira is totally not ominous. Ominous? Ominous. I cannot speak, boys and girls. <laughs> and this this ominous and vague response of the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. You know, I just, I, I wanted right. to say the way that Jordan structured this chapter or sequence, whatever, was superb. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, uh, I think this is a great point, And this actually did stand out to me, too. I had forgotten this sort of staccato point of view shift at the end of that chapter where you know there's because uh, because it's the inn right the the crown of roses yeah. you know and but it's a dual meaning chapter title which is something that i really appreciate and it's something that for instance gene wolf does a lot where he'll have a a chapter title that has an obvious meaning and then if you dig a little deeper into the subtext there's a secondary meaning that enriches and in this, it's, you know, the, the name of the inn, obviously. But also, they're talking about the Rose Crown. Yeah. They're talking about who is going to end up ruling Andor. And who is currently ruling Andor. And, and this dynamic going on around the Crown of Roses. Hmm. Yeah. So that's the uh, end the of my things style that you guys too. notice that I never notice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, if it makes you feel any better, I didn't notice it until this read. I mean, I didn't notice how much I liked it, I should say, until this read. Mm-hmm. So, can I, yeah. like, can I say, bring up something kind of series, spoilery? I don't know. For the entire sure, Wheel yeah. of Time? Yeah, we're not going to, like, we're having gentle spoilers throughout this entire thing, unless we specify at the beginning of the episode that there's a guest on who hasn't read the rest of the series. Go ahead, dude. Um, one thing away. that I <clears throat> really enjoyed with a lot of these scenes with the Aes Sedai was, um knowing what we know about Varen now mm. and speculating yeah. how she was approaching a lot of these issues <laughs> at the time. 
I suppose. Yeah, we, yeah. Now we get more context for it. To you know, we can look at it slightly differently now, knowing what we do now know about Varen. Uh, and Drew. how she was likely trying oh, to ma- manipulate events, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Hmm. I think that's a really good observation. Well, she does seem pretty pretty adamant in that uh, Alana bonding Rand is not quite as big of a deal for some reason as what are these new restrictions that he's placed on us, or are there any new restrictions? Right. Um, maybe a little out of character for an Aes Sedai, uh, but, you know... You never know. This could just be a, a a point of character, something a quirk of her personality. But right. definitely knowing just, what we you know, know you about just her. wouldn't thought you wouldn't have thought much of it at the time, first yeah. read through. But knowing but what now, you know now, you know, it has a much bigger impact. Now you're paying attention, eh? You're like, mm. <laughs> where's Waldo? Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's it's those kind of like little things bit. that make it so re readable for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Um, but, yeah, I think this is a good segue into character, good. since we're kind of talking about Baron's character here. Uh, Rob, is there anyone you want to kind of kick things off with? Uh, well, I mean, I, how can we kick things off with anybody else besides Randolph Thor, I think? Or should we save it with Randolph Thor for the end? What are you thinking? Uh, no, let's start with Rand. Let's start with Rand? Okay, cool, cool. I will yeah. say that... Um, I, I didn't like Rand's decision to flee Camelin immediately upon hearing about the 13 Aes Sedai. Like, yeah, okay, he's in danger. But, I mean, then, then these were things I was able to, to, to rationally realize when I was, like, 12 years old, 13 years old reading this for the first time. A, he has an Angreal, right? B, he has, yes. he has other options besides fleeing. You know, as, like... I thought this again as a kid. I thought this made him look like such a wimp. I knew he wasn't actually a wimp, but I thought it would it would make him seem like one. Even if he stayed and they could overpower him, he could also I mean, he could he could bluff it. And as crazy as okay, bear with me on this one. As crazy as it sounds, what if he just kind of heard that news? Oh, there's 13 Aes Sedai in the city now. Oh, really? And he just decides to hop on over to the Black Tower and grab up about 25 of his boys. You know, what are the Aes Sedai going to do? He could just lie there and wait. They walk into the throne room and they're like, who are all these black-coated guys with the creepy smiles? Oh, it's no big. You know, they're just my homies. By all means, Marana. You were explaining (laughs) where all these extra Aes Sedai came from. You know, I know that's not, would not have been a good idea. I I I know that, but it's funny to consider. A lot of, I think a lot of it with the Ashaman is he doesn't necessarily realize their utility and importance yet. I think, and especially just because, you know, I've kind of read ahead a little bit right now into Crown of Swords and, you know, seeing the bigger role that they take on and the bigger role that um, Tame is trying to push them on to Rand. And he's obviously much more likely to accept that role, given their effectiveness here. Uh, Yeah, and... And I think the paranoia that Rand shows in these chapters, and really over the course of this book, is important in pushing him to accept and utilize the Ashaman in greater roles. Because Rand, up to this point, hasn't ever really failed. You know, he hasn't had anything truly challenge him to the point where he feels like he needs help. Until... He's captured and and he has this this newfound paranoia around Aes Sedai and around trusting people. Uh-huh. And going forward, he is always going to have his Ashaman with him. You know his his trusted group. Uh, you know his his hand picked yeah. guys. His posse as well. 
and and I think that in in this segment of the book, specifically with Rand's character, it, it is all about the paranoia and the fear that he shows. I think in a lot of ways, Rand in these last like 10, 12 chapters, whatever we we covered, um, he's almost more. <laughs> Uh, running scared than he was in like Eye of the World and Great Hunt. He's so impulsive in these chapters, and and he's so just like on tenterhooks about every little change that he can't anticipate. That you know like it, it really upsets his balance, and I think also you know opens the door for a little more of his madness to come through. It opens the door for uh, Luz Theron to have much more of an impact in his, uh, you know, interior landscape, things like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Jared, anything about Rand that you wanted to discuss today? Uh, nothing major right now. Nothing that we haven't covered already, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> okay. Who do, we, uh, who do we move on to now? Should we move on to Matt? Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> so... The color of trust in that whole sequence. What an excellent way to send off this chapter of Matt, like to kind of close this chapter of Matt's life and like begin his journey to Ebudar and exactly where that's going to take him, right? Uh Uh-huh. He's officially passed the mark at this point in my favorite character in the series. Or maybe I just be like most entertaining character in the series. Like to me, I guess they're kind of one and the same, the synonymous uh, but it doesn't take much to please me, I guess. You know, seeing the Aes Sedai of Salidar, particularly those who have history with him enough to be embarrassed by it, just have to deal uh-huh. have to deal with the presence of Matrim Cawthon. Oh my god, it was it's just so much fun. He's absolutely the fly in their proverbial white pudding. He just Oh yeah. He he's he just hangs the ancient symbol of the Aes Sedai, like the dragon banner outside the stable or the sta- yeah. I think it was in a stable wherever he was staying. Yeah, Gold. in the stable lot. Just comedy gold man what do you guys what about you guys matt (laughs) yeah i i completely agree and this chapter in particular is one of my favorites uh not only for the the titular song uh but his his interactions with all of these different Aes Sedai during the you know the dancing and whatnot and yes yes swan to dance which is just a classic moment (laughs) and then liana comes and sweeps him up and and he figures out, you know, and then she kisses him. He's like, "What? What?" She just what? throws herself you know? on him. Oh yeah, like and and uh, and then of course Halima. This is Ugh. this is uh, an amusing moment, but also an important uh, world building magic moment because this is our confirmation on the page right here that the medallion works on Sidine as well. Yes. Uh, and then uh, you know, and then the, like the next day, Matt is like fielding, like constantly rebuffing. All of these Aes Sedai trying to get him to, uh, you know, to, to, to become him. their warder, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like, Morel twice, you know, like, <laughs> and and all this and like poor Matt. It's just, yeah. it's really entertaining seeing him, seeing him be discomfited by all this interaction with Aes Sedai, but on the flip side, of course, seeing all the Aes Sedai not knowing. How, how to deal with to him. handle him at all. You <laughs> he's know? such a wild card. They can't predict anything he's going to do. They can't react to anything he's going to do because it's just going to egg him on, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared, He's Matt? so out of place and uncomfortable, but by just being Matt, he thwarts any attempts by them to control him. That's a good way. Just right. That's a good way to put it. Just by being Matt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but so I, I have another point about Matt go to for bring it, up dude. here. It's a I little later in the book. 
when they arrive in Ebudar and he walks through the doors of the Wandering Woman and the dice stop. Oh, and is that when he meets Atala Anand? Yes, okay, it is. Okay, cool, cool, okay. Uh, so, this, I think, is like where the dice as a narrative device become a you know a big thing okay it's it's in ebudar and going forward that the dice are are this omnipresent awareness that matt has before this like i think they're maybe only mentioned like once you know it, it's it, it does seem like something that robert jordan maybe had toyed around with but in this book and with the ebudar plotline he really settle down on yes this is something i mm. want to do with matt yeah he found a voice for it definitely. over the next you know over the next uh three four books the dice are a major part of matt's character uh, it, this rattling in the back of his head and his his own paranoia about what what are they going to mean this time why are they stopping things like that yeah yeah so um i wanted to say that um I was obviously creeped out enough with one of the women offering to bond him being Halima's mistress. Or, uh, sorry, Halima. Her, yeah, sorry, Halima's mistress. Yeah, it was Delana, is her name? Yeah, Delana. Yeah, Delana Sedai. And then we have this whole dance sequence sequence with Halima, and just Matt enjoyed it so much, I was just uh, goosebumps the whole time, but not in a good way. I was like, ugh, God. Yeah, some, um, uh, some real real nightmare fuel Yeah, there. and um, the last point uh, on Matt's character that I have to discuss for today, I wanted to talk about his relationship with Oliver going forward and how, how awesome and priceless that is and in, in a weird way, wholesome. And I know wholesome is a weird way to put it because we can st- we're already starting to see the way that the band is starting to, and I'll use air quotes, corrupt little Oliver. Um, but we are, we're starting to see the beginnings of the good-natured like soldier's life shaping him as well and how it just he continues to, to baffle Matt, you know, flirting with all these women around him. Like, honestly, where does he learn that kind of thing? Yeah. You know? Entertaining. Yes. Entertaining. It's typical Matt, again, thinking that he's not a role model when he is. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. So that, that wraps up my points about Matt today. Okay. Uh, I, my last kind of note about Matt is just the uh, amusing little interaction he has uh, in The Wandering Woman near the end with the... Uh, the Sharon and the Shanshan. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who who we don't yet know, you know, we don't have confirmation yet on page that it's a Shanshan. Um, wait, no, actually, at the well, very we, very we end, do in the epilogue, in the epilogue yeah. we get that that brief point of view from that same guy, oh. and he thinks about his his interaction with that weird fellow in the hat. I think it was. Yeah. Well, hold on. That's and, actually the uh, point. Have you uh, put together who that particular Shanshan man is? Crap. Um, I, <laughs> I remember hearing, I think hearing that point that we're talking about an audiobook section I listened to a month ago and I went, <gasps> wait a second, but I don't remember that connection that I made. I don't Go remember. ahead. So he's Damn. the seeker more. The seeker who was, uh, who was interrogating, uh, blah, 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 Iginen? Yep. Okay. And Chico. And then Got he you. gets involved with, uh, um, like Bethamin and right. Kareed right. later on okay. and he yeah sets off this whole thing and he has his like blatantly untrue conspiracy theory yeah, yeah. same dude okay okay got you got you 
Um, yeah. So who are we moving on to next? Should we just wrap up our Tavirian 3, talk about Perrin? Sure. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say about Perrin in this. I mean, other than, like, you know, it's it's cool to have him, like, back and, and actually involved in the action again. Right. Uh, um, I, I will say, like, poor Perrin having to deal with Fayil's <laughs> family. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's a lot of what I have to talk about with Perrin today. I wanted to say, welcome back, Perrin, first off. It's been a little while. Um, at least in this book, it's been, you know, we, we had no, no Perrin up to now. Like, we've, especially for Jared, somebody who likes Perrin so much, I imagine it's been a real pleasure for you to finally get, you know, more page time with him, eh? It is minus Fail. Yeah, it is minus Fail. I like the way you put that. It was great to see Rand and Perrin finally reunited, even though they didn't really have much opportunity to chill out, as the kids used to call it in my day. Um, but yeah, as you just said, Jared, his again with Fail, his chapters with Fail, every interaction they have is infuriating. It's a little more understandable for me on Fail's part, but it doesn't it doesn't make this sequence any more enjoyable, like at all. It's just annoying. We're going through the end of this book in a huge climactic moment, and Perrin's sitting here worrying about how Fael's being a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, really. And how he now has to worry about having, like, six children. Uh, yeah. Because Fael uh, made that decision. Mm. You know, I was I was honestly a little bored around here this time through. When I, when I was re- reading about Bear Lane trying to corner Perrin for the 10th time, 12th time, 20th time, I couldn't help thinking, okay, like, we get it. Bitch is a hoe, all right? Now let's let's move on with this <laughs> so we can get back to Rand in the big picture. I, I swear, like, as a kid, right. I was 100% with Perrin, and, and I hated everyone else around him at this point for screwing him over. I hated Berylaine, even though she's clearly so hot. I loathed Fael, uh <laughs> for refusing to understand what Perrin was trying to communicate, you know, during that whole situation, what was happening with Berylaine. And this time around, I was actually getting ready to gear up and look at it from a different angle. Like... Like I did in the Shadow Rising, for example. I think part one of the Shadow Rising, I had a, a little bit of bitching to do in there. But uh, this, despite that bitching about Fael, mostly, I recall at least partly admitting that Perrin actually maybe did bungle things and that he's Billy being a bit willfully ignorant in that part. And I was getting ready to say a lot of the same thing this time around in Lord of Chaos, but I decided, you know what, looking at, stepping back and looking at it, no, no. <sighs> This okay, so this is what I this is what I want to know. Before we started recording today, I was getting my thoughts down. What if this situation was reversed? Let's say let's gender bend this situation here, okay? Let's say it's our ma- our main character here is Min, and it's an older authoritative male who keeps trying to seduce her, you know, to throw himself directly directly into the middle of her marriage and to be waiting for her out of sight, this creepy guy waiting for her out of sight in the hallways, lying in ambush, stalking her all the time. It would be creepy as. F- Oh, yeah. Right? Like, it's somehow just because Bear Lane is so hot. So hot. It's somehow more acceptable. Or at least it makes, I don't know, Perrin partially culpable for refusing to confront her. That was Fael's big big issue, obviously, is that Perrin wasn't right. going to wasn't going to engage with her on a level, on an emotional level, at least as raw as he was with, with Bear Lane. But I just, I'm so ambivalent about that entire situation. What about you guys? I think you you have a pretty apt point there. There are, you know, more things we're going to be exploring later on in the series that show how Robert Jordan likes to play with, uh, you know, gender-based double standards. Yeah. Uh, Which, uh, I mean, I'm not particularly thrilled to engage with in the next book. Yeah. 
we will have to do so. We will um, have to do so, yeah. But I, I do think this <clears throat> is something Robert Jordan was doing on purpose with Berlane and Perrin, where he was trying to make another kind of statement the way he did with Matt and Tylen. So. Agreed. So, and honestly, I really didn't have anybody else as a character written down to talk about. Oh, I had I had one point about Gowan here. And I just Ugh. wanted to see, yeah, see, that, that was pretty much my point. You can actually summarize my entire point by <laughs> just writing three letters <laughs> in italics. Ugh. No, like, this is the point in the series where I just actively begin to dislike, sorry, I begin to actively dislike Gowan. His obsession with Rand and Rand's supposed, and I, I, I will highlight that freaking word, supposed murder of his mother, regardless as to what anybody says or whomever it's, it, it comes from, he has decided that his mother is dead, and he has decided that Rand has killed her, and he clearly must be evil. No questions asked. And he's such an arrogant, ignorant, hot-headed fool. How old is he? My No, not my age. He's a couple years younger. He's like 24, I think, at this point. Oh, that is a great question. So we can't attribute this to teenage he's, idiocy? No, this is definitely not teenage so BS. He's a couple years... He's probably about 20. I believe he's like Rand's age. He's a couple he's years a younger couple than years older than Right? He's a couple years older than Elaine. Oh, Elaine's like Elaine 17 at this point. at this point, point is 18. 18. I thought he was still older so. than that. I, I, I seem to remember saying... Or somebody saying... Somewhere in this series that he's a couple of years younger than Galad. And Galad's like 27 at this point, right? Mm, okay, I'm gonna... So, Galad was... Galad is 20 at this point. What? Maybe 19. He was born in 979 and he... <laughs> and Lord of Chaos is taking place in 999. So, Gowan is 18 at this? Cannot be 18 at this no. point. 19. 19. 19 or 20. So, Elaine 18, Gowan 19, Galad 20. No. What? Sorry, no, did I miss... No, no, no. Gawain was born in 979 and... <laughs> hey, you said Ga- Galad. No, you said Galad. <laughs> no, oh you did. God. We have it on... I'm pretty sure we have it re- uh, recorded. You said Galad. Sorry, dude. All right, well, well, I'm like 80% sure. Not Gawain was born okay. in 979 NE. Got you. Okay, okay. So Galad's I, 20 yeah. at this point. Hey, it could be... No, Gawain is 20. I meant to say Gawain. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, uh, you got me screwing up, Gawain. Gawain and Galad now. Okay, we're done. You're the one who's been actually, saying Galad this whole time. You know what? Time. If I'm not mistaken, there was actually an episode recently in the Wheel of Time where I meant to say Gawain, and I said Galad. It was Egwene dreaming about Gawain, and I accidentally said Galad. I think that was just on the last episode, perhaps. Maybe two episodes Galad ago. was born nine years before Gawain. Damn. So, Galad is like 28 or 29. Okay, see, I was closer, definitely a lot closer to Galad. If you have questions, there. reference the encyclopedia. Yeah, we call him yeah. Drew McCaffrey. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I don't know, I was uh, just yes, thinking, like, Galad. maybe he was Gowan. super young Fuck. and we can attribute Gawain being an idiot to that kind of thing, but... Well, if Gawain's 20, then... Mm, that's, that's not too old. He, it could be a lot of young adult nonsense. To be fair, he he has been... A victim of being left in the dark by both sides of Aes Sedai at this point. That is yeah. not. That doesn't but make he chooses, what he's doing right. That cho- he chooses to handle it in the worst possible way. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, so that's all that needs to be said about that. Any other uh, character points that you guys want to discuss? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I mean, you know, I could say a couple of brief things about the Wonder Girls, but this 
portion of the book really yeah. isn't about See, that. I have a blank spot here for Nynaeve and a blank spot for Elaine and a blank spot for Min because I really couldn't think of anything to discuss that was really important about those three characters at this point. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, Elaine and Nynaeve, all, all they really do in this portion is, like, try to study Max Tarangriel and then talk to Tylen for a little bit. Like, they don't do a whole lot. And uh, similarly, Min, you know, she she's sort of a passenger uh, with Rand in this whole segment. Yeah. And then, like, we don't even, like, get any Eggween, hardly. You know, we have, well, like, a couple of scenes with her, and then she's in the uh, the epilogue when um, they find out that Magedion is gone, and she releases Loghain. Ah, yeah, yeah. That tough so, decision that she had to make there, yeah? Yeah. Um, but... One thing, you know, that I think we have to discuss, it's not necessarily character-based, is the Battle of Doom as well. Okay. And and I want to discuss this, like, on a couple of levels. One, I want to talk about, like, the reader's experience, like, the entertainment factor with this. Because, you know, as I mentioned, this is one of the most bombastic endings to any book I've ever read. Bombastic. You know, this is one of... Yes. This is one of the... You know, truly famous battles in in all of fantasy i mean you know when if you go on like reddit fantasy and and ask for like people's top five battles in fantasy books i guarantee you Dumai's wells is going to be on most of those you know things like that this is a monumental scene in the landscape of fantasy fiction you know it, it's so crazy there's so much action. It's such a groundbreaking moment in the series because this is, you know, with the advent of the Ashaman on the battlefield, it's something that we've, as readers, whether we recognize it or not, have been waiting six books and what, you know, almost two million words to have happen. And, and it, you know, and it happens, and boy, does it not disappoint. Would you say this I is... I mean, the... Sorry, would you say this is our large-scale our first large-scale confrontation between multiple channelers, like large-scale, between dozens or more. Oh, absolutely. This has got to be. I can't think of anything else. I mean, we have lots more of the power being thrown around, like, for example, at the end of The Shadow Rising. Um, But uh, we still haven't had, like, this big multi-person confrontation between multiple factions wielding both the male (laughs) and the female half of the true sword. In the context of a battle with armies. Yeah. They're yeah. the only one power battles we've seen before this have been like, you know, Rand versus the Forsaken type things. Yeah. You know, one on one showdowns, maybe like, you know, two on one sort of things. Uh, but but this is, as you said, the first large scale one power battle we see. And as Jared noted, you know, it's it's also involving run of the mill soldiers, which makes it that much more terrifying terrifying yeah really it's the same word you know, I because for, yeah. you're seeing just how helpless normal people are in the face of channelers like the ashaman people who as as rand noted and taim you know carried out were made into weapons yes like the Aes Sedai, you know they're not <clears throat> battle trained even the green aja you know they're not battle trained the Ashaman are battle trained. Their whole purpose, at least at this point, uh, as it's become skewed by Taim, is to destroy. Yeah. 
and it's also a little scary you know there's a lot of a lot of things when you dig down like a level there are a lot of things that are really scary in the last part of this and and the ashaman in this as i noted like what 10 12 chapters in a span of 10 or 12 chapters from rand saying you're going to be guardians to do my wells when time's like no no you're not guardians you are pure weapons Taim has already twisted the purpose of the Ashaman. No, 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 step. not at all. Rand told him, he said, push them, push them hard. I need weapons. Turn oh, them into weapons. Yes, he made yes. that very clear. Yeah. Well, so he does tell him, I need them to be weapons. But the whole purpose of the Ashaman, the name means guardian. Yeah. Rand wants them to be a shield against the shadow. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're going to have to fight the shadow. But what Taim turns them into are inhuman weapons not human guardians. And that's that's what's unsettling about it. That that hundreds of these guys will just blindly be like, okay, I'm going to go horrifically slaughter thousands of people and not even bat an eye at it. Like, we see we see people like Rand even, like, sickened by this. None of the Ashaman are bothered. The Ashaman aren't, like, turning around and throwing up in, Which in their, a little... you know weird because uh, presumably they haven't slaughtered people before this i imagine i think think that's a a point toward how time is treating them and training them i suppose which makes it the more unsettling and that's what i'm talking about like digging down the layer and did removing that because when you just read it turning them into yeah when when you just read it as like an entertainment thing it's like oh cool look at how badass they are and then when you consider the emotional and mental toll that this should be taking on like a real human being here, it becomes horrifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the Aiel break before this, and the Aiel don't break for shit. Yeah, and yeah. we're talking full on sprint retreat in panic break. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That was uh, that was pretty cool. Um, uh, what else? Uh, anything? Oh, I actually, there's one thing about Dumai's Wells that I want to discuss. Well, a confession I have to make, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel bad saying this, but I did not realize that the name Dumai's Wells was actually, until this read, was actually about three broken, dilapidated ancient wells that are actually there. They're physical objects that are there on this field of battle. I didn't realize that. I yeah. thought it was like the name of a town that this took place. And even though I know that I realized it was emptiness all around it for the longest time. I'm like, what are these? Like, what is Dumai's wells? I didn't realize there are actually physical objects that were there present on scene. Yeah. They're like right by where Rand. Was yeah. Where chest. Rand kabooms the, the box and he, and he, <laughs> and he escapes and they, they discuss the three ancient wells. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I just somehow 50 <laughs> reads before this every time. Right over my head. I found oh, it this time, though. <laughs> One of the things that I'm kind of thinking about reading this, uh, along with what Drew is saying, is how the Ashaman are not bound by three oaths. Definitely uh, not. That they are not. That's yeah, like terrifying. It, it is. like It is really scary what Rand has created and how quickly it's getting out of his control. You know, where the, there are, like, no checks on the Ashaman, basically. Yeah. There are no checks on them. Yeah, yeah, and this they're, is... They're not beholden to, like, a pre-existing power structure the way Aes Sedai are. Aes Sedai, even if they didn't have the three O's, uh, and, you know, and this goes back to why they made the three O's in the first place, is the Aes Sedai want sociopolitical power. 
and they have to be beholden to these oaths and behave themselves or else they will lose that power. Mm-hmm. Yashaman don't care about that. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> um yeah, no that this this is something that uh very briefly talking about spoilers for later in the series again, Andral, Andral Genhald tells Pivara um, later in A Memory of Light, he says, he makes a specific point, he says, you may have a, centuries of experience combined on your side, but every single man in here from the time he learned to channel to where he is now has learned nothing except how to be a mindless killing machine, how to be a weapon. And, and, the caveat there, the cherry on the proverbial cake on the, on the icing, most of them are insane. To some extent or other. Uh, yeah. Like, even if they had three O's, how do you think they would be able to hold to these things being completely unaware and unable to to to, to control themselves? Right. It's terrifying. Yeah. It is. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is kind of where I was going with, like, the thrust of my, like, digging down a level with this whole last segment. There are so many things that on the surface just seem like cool plot points or things like that but when you start really interrogating them you realize just how unsettling just how scary all of these events at the end of lord of chaos are and how thematically apt they are for the title of the book and for the opening and closing bookend scenes to this with the dark one you know yeah you know, the, this let the Lord of Chaos rule and demand Dredge up. have I not done well? You know, all of this where... The Dark One's laughter. It's, oh, I mean, man. it's scary how, how uh, you know... If I were to write a black metal album, much... it would probably be oh. called The Dark One's Laughter. It's just so freaking <laughs> chilling. <laughs> Heebie-jeebies, ladies and gentlemen. Um... Yeah. Uh, it's so funny you kind of like realize this whole time maybe uh, the voice in Rand's head, Luz Theron, has a point. Oh, Luz right. Theron makes a few good points, I think. <laughs> yeah. As terrifying as that is also to consider. Yeah. Um, I have a few miscellaneous thoughts I want to get out of the way, but I want to ask first, Drew, do you have any uh, any lore things you want to get out of the way? So I have two uh, okay. small ones. Sweet. Uh, the first of which is going back to, uh, oh my gosh, and now I'm now I'm blanking on her name. Uh, uh, I'll help you. Well, who is she? What does she do? Deira, the Aes Sedai. Not Deira. Oh my gosh, the Aes Sedai who gets stabbed by the Aiel. Begins with a D. Demira. Yeah, Demira. Yeah, she got stabbed. Yeah. 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 So those were not actually Aiel. What? What? Hold back the f up. What? Those were not Aiel. No, they were not Aiel. Um, so, and the the giveaway here is uh, when they stab her and she's like, you know, lying on the ground bleeding out. One of them says, yeah. tell the other witches to stay away from Althor. Oh, they would have said the, the Karakar. Kar- witches. And the witches. word witches yeah, yeah. is the clue for who these guys are. And the other thing is, the guy has, like, dark eyes oh, above the veil. Oh, my God. They are Padden Fane's white cloaks. Oh, okay. I was going to say, are they children of the light? But I didn't see the Padden Fane they coming are. out of nowhere. Holy yeah. crap. Yeah. Okay, see, I thought what, what made them have to be Aiel is the fact that they stabbed her and she thought she was going to die. But it turned out that she clung to life long enough because they somehow missed all of her vital 
organs. And I thought, well, that's something that only a Nail, somebody very, very practiced with a spear can do. When do we find out they're specifically Thanes? Uh, we we don't, other than the fact that Thane has been in Camelin this whole time and has tried to right. mess with Rand. So uh, we're supposed to infer there there are no are white cloaks in Camelin other than Fane's white cloaks okay. at this point in time. Okay. Um. Anything else, lore wise? You said you had a couple. Yeah. Was that that was one, right? Uh, and the other is uh, the Golom, and I just want to tie this oh, back to yeah. the Great Hunt and this theory that I have um, about Barthanes because the theory you said is as fact. No, I, I mean, there's nothing... Uh, well, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt like, you. That the Golom killed Barthanes? Yeah, you said the first time we saw the Golom, even though we didn't have it named, the first time it oh, appeared in the narrative. Oh, I didn't narrative. say that was fact. No, I didn't say that was fact. Okay, okay. It's, it's a theory. Um, but but it's, I think, a very strong theory, and, and all the circumstantial evidence here, you know, because this, again, takes place in Barthanes' bed. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, and Herod fails killed in the same manner as Barthanes. Yeah. You know, torn limb from limb. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of reiterate that theory that I think it was, in fact, the Golom who killed Barthanes. Oh, yeah. It's, back it, in uh, in the Great Hunt. I, I totally agree with that, yeah. It has to have been the Golom, you know. Whoa. What other creature has the Great strength Hunt. to do that? Right? Right. Well, I mean, like, presumably a Merdral or something like that, but... Even you then. know, uh, but Mergeral generally don't yeah. tear people limb from limb when they kill them. They yeah. just like I'm stab sure they them, have more inventive know. ways. Uh, yeah, or torture them to death. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did uh, what did Harry yeah, Fell what did, what did Fell say? Like you have to. No one to hold them. No one to fold them. No, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you have to tear down before you rebuild. Oh yeah, or belief like in that. order gives strength. Must Cause... clear rubble before you can rebuild. Do yeah. not bring girl next time. Too pretty. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Sorry, I just so, laugh at the last bit. And, and that's and that's where we get the you know where Rand gets the knowledge that the seals must be broken before the boar can be yeah. resealed so, more completely. I guess that actually brings up uh, one minor question I totally forgot to write down to ask you, Drew. Belief and order give strength. What is the significance of that, and why would Fell waste time writing those words along with you know must clear rubble before you can rebuild? What is the significance uh, of that? Because as chaos grows in the world, the Dark One uh, gains strength and can break the seals more quickly. Okay, so the, so the Dark chaos One... Chaos in the world is what weakens the seals. The Dark One's corruption of, like, the hope of mankind, perhaps? Would yeah, you say? I mean, like, it gets really metaphysical sure, here, sure. obviously, but because there's the whole, like, you know, the land is tied to the... The land is one with the dragon and all of this stuff, yeah. and so the idea of, like... Uh, chaos being sown throughout the land is going to impact Rand negatively, yeah. and it's going to impact the seals because the Dark One gets yeah. stronger. And, and as we see later in, in the series, I think it was Egwene that mentions this near near the end. She says that I think it was Egwene, that merely killing everybody is not what the Dark One aims to do. He aims to break everybody, to destroy mm. their hope. So, yeah, pretty metaphysical there, I suppose. I can see that being what, what Fell was trying to get across, especially considering, you know, the the magnitude of what he was saying in that moment. You know, he's talking about the seals on the Dark One's prison, and he just right. writes it on a little, like, a little strip of paper, like, this big. I just, I, I love the, 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 the 
I don't know, the nonchalance with which, which, with which Jordan decides to do something like that. It's not like this this message given like by word of mouth in a, in a moment of despair. It's not like this big shining banner, this proclamation. It's this little torn away kind of, I don't know, back of his mind slip of paper that he decides to send to Rand that has so much significance for the rest of this series. I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. So, uh, did you have any further questions? I have one question and, like, four or five just, like, miscellaneous notes about things that happened in this, uh, in this part of the book. My question, though, Drew, and this is about, um, Aiel culture, so I don't know, um, how confident you are in, uh, answering this particular one. This is kind of obscure. I I still cannot, for the life of me, understand this. Can you clarify to me just what happened between Sulin and Nendera on the march to recover the Karakarn after he was captured? Cause be, and I'll finish. From what I gather, Nandera was sort of like in charge of the maidens during like Sulin's tantrum, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that word tantrum. Mm-hmm. And yep. now that Sulin has returned to Kadensor, there was like a throwdown of honor of some sort. Like they're both trying to take. Like we see them both trying to take the same orders from Ruark and Soralia. Absolutely. Yep. Hold on, not Soralia. What the hell? Sulin absolutely destroys Nandera. Like, and as a side note, holy shit, was that totally necessary? She's smashing her head yeah, into the yeah. ground, like, oh my god, that was brutal. <laughs> and what gets me is that, like, afterward, though, where I get confused, though, is that Sulin still, after that, kind of ostensibly defers to Nandera. And, of course, this is all happening from Perrin's point of view. He doesn't understand, of course, and so I don't understand. What the hell was happening there? So, as I understand it, and and I'm going to put a big asterisk on this because, <laughs> sure. you know, I don't have a for sure answer here, but as I understood it, that whole like beatdown yeah. was essentially like Sulin losing her temper, and it wasn't supposed to go that far. So she has toe to Nandera, and she's discharging that toe by being subservient to her. Okay. By okay. buckling under and letting Nandera See, at first, take the lead. I thought it might have just been like you know a throwdown of honor. Like, look, I'm back. I'm taking the lead spot back like I had before. Nandera going, uh, uh-uh, girl, you screwed up. I'm ta- I'm keeping this. But seeing as how Sulin was still deferring to Nandera afterwards, I I can kind of get on board with that. It could just be Sulin or maybe Nandera decided to to offend Sulin Whoa. clearly, and then Sulin so decided to rise think, to that. I do think it was like a little bit of like an. an honor challenge in a way but that Sulin went way too far in it okay and incurred her, toe in and her resulting toe from that from going way too yeah. far is why she continues to defer yes or part of why she continues to defer well, I guess yeah. we're to- and, and it, yeah you know so to our listeners if you have an alternate interpretation yeah I'd love to hear it post on our Facebook you know in the Facebook group let us know what you think uh, this is definitely something that I'm not like super confident on this is just my interpretation so just bashing her head into the rocks on the ground i was like damn and sulin's how old she's in her, her 50s right she's she's not a young she's not a spring chicken yeah yeah, yeah. she's she's uh definitely in in middle age somewhere well, she yeah, that's uh, there you go 15 ways from sunday all right. Um, yeah. So as far as my uh, miscellaneous notes here, just random points about what we've read. Um, another portentous viewing from Min. Rand's life depending on Perrin's presence. Not once, but twice. So, uh, well, this is one of the things that I was going to oh, yeah? discuss in my closing notes is not just one portentous viewing from Min. Min has tons oh, of yeah, viewings. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just wrote this segment. one down as I read it. And uh, obviously the Perrin one is really big, but the one that really stood out to me was 
her viewings on all the uh, high lords and ladies oh. and how so many of them are going to die of these, you know, various underhanded, violent ways. And, yeah, and how but... she's like, I have never seen a room with so much violent death but... you know, foretold in it. Like Again, to, to gently spoil what's coming, though, we see a lot of that pan out literally at the beginning of the next book. Yeah, oh, definitely. So I'm, I'm not disputing that it's not going to come. I guess fast. No, that, could, that saying, could still like, stay that, portentous, though. Yeah, you're right, though. Yeah, like it's uh, it's another sort of sign about how how much upheaval is to come. How how chaotic some of these societies are going to get when all of their leaders are dying violently. Yeah, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, my next point here, uh, the two Aes Sedai, Bera Harkin and Karuna Nachaman. An arrow fired, I wrote down, an arrow fired by the pattern weeks, if not months before this. They were the two Aes Sedai sent from Salidar to the Waste, where they actually, I think it was in, a, in the Fires of Heaven, I want to say it was the Fires of Heaven, where they were sent yep. to the Waste, because that's where Randall Thor, the Dragon Reborn, was purported to be. Right? To search yep. for rain. And of course, as we learn, halfway there they heard that he was in Camelin. Boom! Counting Alana and Varen, Bera Harkin, Karuna Nachiman, 13 Aes Sedai. I thought that was a really, really deft narrative uh, strike on Jordan's part. Uh like like that was that was awesome. That was really well done. Um to belief in order to give strength. Oh, actually I asked you that one already. I hadn't realized that I actually did write that one down. Oh, uh Herodfell goes fishing after that? That's what I wanted. I just wanted to, to say he decides. He decides that he feels young again, and he wants to go fishing of all things in what Seems is like probably the worst do. drought that planet has seen since the breaking of the world. <laughs> Maybe it's symbolic fishing. What is he fishing for? Like fish flies, leeches? Like uh, I don't, like eh. I don't know. I'm I'm just gonna say I always uh, figured that he was. Uh, putting up a front that he was being like you know dry and dusty and not willing to admit that he was going to go find a prostitute oh, because maybe, he maybe. got all hot and bothered by me <laughs> oh no Harry fell not you I don't know yeah, maybe though I can see Robert Jordan getting that cheeky with it so you, so you can or you can't Robert Jordan never he never approaches sex no, head no, on he, you know yeah. like it's it's always oblique like He always that. beats around the bush, if you'll pardon the, the expression that I'll throw in there. Hey! hey. <laughs> uh, kick and rim shot. There you go, Pat. Um, <laughs> so, let's see here. Oh, small detail I picked up on this time with this reread. Rand, and he's kind of, sort of, totally, like, not fleeing from Camelin as he's thinking, but he, he writes these two letters before he does so. He notes that, and at the end, he notes that Luz Theron's voice has supposedly disappeared and I paraphrase, paraphrase, as if wearied by his struggle for control. But then we have Morana reading the letter, and then she realizes, she notes to herself that the last two lines were written as if by a different hand. And I yep. legitimately got a shiver at that point when I realized what that implies. Did Morana just see Luz Theron's handwriting? Yep. Oh. One would assume. <laughs> oh my god, that is so creepy. <laughs> it's so cool. It's so cool, but so creepy. Um, <clears throat> all right. Oh, Loyal. I want to discuss Loyal really briefly and his completely inappropriate comments about the shape of Aerith's ears. 
Like, Jesus, Loyal, calm down, you pervert. God. Yeah, I mean, are, are we going to have to, you know, make Ear Hub next? I mean, we got Safe Hand Hub. I, I feel like Ear Hub is the next uh, logical step here. Yeah, really. Oh, man. I, now I want to uh, enlist Danny to draw some, like, Ogier in leads. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh my goodness! Get get a when we get to the point in Knife of Dreams where they get married, just yeah. have the thumbnail. Imagine for that no, imagine a o sexy O-Gear calendar <laughs> for every month, right? Oh my goodness! And uh, oh wait, a no, question for Drew got that out of the way and point in the series where I begin to actively dislike Gowan. Yeah, no, I've, I'm actually through all of my miscellaneous thoughts for Lord of Chaos Part okay. Three. I'm ready to do my favorite uh, scenes. Well, Jared, uh, do you have any closing thoughts? Nope. All right. Cool. Well, uh, I'm my my closing thoughts here before we get into favorite scenes. Uh, obviously, I I kind of tagged on to one of yours, Rob. But oh. uh, I I just want to say, as a whole, this book remains one of my favorites in the series. It, oh yeah. And if anything, I, I think have it is more my favorite. Of an appreciation for it now. You, you know, it's it's been like I said, like six, almost seven years since I read this last, and my. Uh, approach to reading books has changed so much and and the kind of things i look for are different from what i was looking for and how i was engaging the wheel of time the last time i read it and from that perspective there is even more like this is one of the richest books to mine for writing craft tidbits and you know how robert jordan shapes his narratives and his character arcs and things like that there's there's a lot of subtext in this book. There's a lot thematically to dig into below the surface. It's just, you know, it's got all those crowning moments of awesomeness throughout it and masterful bits of writing strewn throughout. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so on, on that note, Rob... Why don't you kick us off with your three favorite oh, scenes? Oh, I can kick us off with my favorite scenes. Um, actually, first I want to give an honorable mention. This is this is my actually my fourth favorite, if you'll permit me that. Um, I wanted to really briefly notice uh, Lan arriving at the camp of the Salidar Aes Sedai. Everything oh, about yep. that scene. It's placement at the end of the chapter, the ominous atmosphere, the return and introduction of whom I'm going to call Terminator Lan. You know, just... Chef's kiffs. Kiffs? Kiss. So good. So and, good. And another thing that when you dig down a layer, it gets really creepy because it shows you just how uh, uh, effective the bond can be at compelling people mm. and how, uh, like, just how bad a place Lan is in mentally and emotionally and how willing Morel is to manipulate that to get what she wants. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, a uh, little little detail. Totally forgot to write this down. Little detail in that scene that I hadn't picked up on before. Nothing particularly important for the series. Just so so mind-blowingly cool. Uh, maybe it's the eleven-year-old in me that just like still has this sense of wonder and awe over you know Al Land Mandragor. And there's a moment when he's when he's told to go to go practice the forms and he's just like flowing through the forms as if in a dance. And these two grasshoppers leap off of a plant behind him yeah. and it's described as 
as if he has eyes in the back of his head. He just he, he rotated and sliced them both in half in the middle of his whole like routine there. His shadow boxing yep. with the sword. Holy crap! That guy is just—he's so intimidating. You, I, um, my goodness, he could—he could beat me up if he had the flu. If he had the black yeah, plague, yeah. he could still put me six <laughs> feet under in about six seconds. Oh my yeah. god, this guy. So sorry. Now onto okay. onto my three favorite yeah. scenes proper. Um, Perrin meeting Davram and Dira Bashir for the first time, and Bashir's whole. <laughs> Tough guy Ooh. attitude coming from all of five foot four. I loved it. I loved it. And his then the way he warms up to Perrin after he makes it clear, he's like, Perrin's like, just try and take her from me. I dare you. You know, it was just so much tension built in that scene. And then, in my opinion, a lot of tension relieved after that scene. And I can vaguely remember thinking on my first read that like this was a moment that, that I hadn't realized I had been waiting for as much as I was. You know, really cool <laughs> okay. scene. Um, second favorite scene, Perrin reaching, uh, by the way, all my three favorite scenes, they're all Perrin scenes, believe it or not. I swear. Wow. Um, Perrin reaching yes. out to the wolves in, to like, to, you know, to get their aid yeah, in locating yeah. the Aes Sedai that captured Rand and how they ask him, you know, almost as an afterthought, like, oh yeah, um, by the way, why? And, and Perrin's like they uncertain. Yeah. He's uncertain how they're going to react. So he just kind of says they have caged shadow killer. And then the yeah. hills in all directions just erupt in howling and fury and challenge. I was so tempted. I was so tempted. So pumped at work reading this that I literally went, yes! I, I was pumping my fist there on the iron worker machine. I was like, oh, so cool. So cool. And I'm just going yeah, go to say, wait until we get to see that scene in the TV show. Uh, well, how are, I'm wondering how they're going to get that across. You know that line's going to be in there. Oh, my oh God. yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then my favorite scene, my number one favorite scene, um, was Sorelia's declaration of war. And you'll notice something about this scene, something really, really cool I think Jordan did with this character. And as if, uh, I, sorry, as Rand is originally taken by the Tower Aes Sedai, um, he's held captive in the basement right before they leave the city in their inn. And he, he, from his point of view, he's hoping that one of the wise ones who can channel might pass by and feel Saidar being wielded for his shielding. And then we switch point of view directly to Soralia, who it turns out is in fact passing right outside right at that very moment. And Soralia, who remarks that she can feel intense channeling from inside that very building thinks, well, of course, they've been channeling non-stop since they arrived, so nothing out of the ordinary, you know? Yep. At that moment, where Soralia gave us the faintest glimmer of hope, Jordan just squashes it ruthlessly. And then, 10 or 12 chapters later, shortly after, Soralia brings that very same glimmer of hope back, literally with her channeled flame, that declaration of war. Chills, my dude, chills. Nice. Good so, choice. Yeah, those are my three favorites. Jared, what about you? Uh, well, Rob stole my thunder with Perrin and the Wolves. That's definitely <laughs> of I one. Did. One of my favorite lines in this series. Um, second, I'd actually say the very first scene with Demandred. I think Ooh. that's the very first. Yes. Nice. Um, this is the first time we're actually at Shale Ghoul, right? 
Yes, yeah. yes. We heard a description of Shale Ghoul in the Fires of Heaven, but we haven't actually been there as a narrative scene. And the first time we get Demandred. <clears throat> and the first time we meet Demandred, definitely. Um, and then I would say the other one was at Dumai's Wells, specifically when the Ashaman are appearing, and I think it's Perrin is seeing all of the gateways out of the corner of his vision. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. That was pretty cool. I would give also give an honorable mention to uh, Egwene's scene when she is risen to Amerlin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, okay. Damn. Good call. All right, Drew. Favorite scenes, boy? Okay. So, uh, I'm I'm not going to have Doom as Wells in my top three scenes. And, and while it is a great scene, uh, there are some things that just, like, infuriate me about it. Oh. Uh, which is what keeps me out. And, and one of those is actually um, the Aes Sedai, who, like, the... the the Saladar Aes Sedai, who come and, and help Perrin. And they make such a big deal out of, like, oh, we can't channel yet, we're not in danger, I don't feel in danger yet, blah, 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 blah. They are being awful, awful people there. They are intentionally trying to raise the casualty count among the Tower uh, Coalition under attack there. It does not matter that they did not feel in danger. The oath against using the one power as a weapon includes, except in the last defense of my life or that of another sister. Oh. And all those Tower Aes Sedai were down there getting fireballs rained on them and with 40,000 Shido trying to kill them. Damn. These Aes Sedai were a bunch of bitches <laughs> in this yeah. scene. Literally and figuratively, yeah. It infuriates me Damn. every time I read that. Damn. So, my uh, my grudge against the Saladar Aes Sedai and, and that kind of uh, issue I have with the Battle of Doom as well is because of that. All that aside, my three favorite scenes in the book. My third favorite scene is Nynaeve healing specifically Swan and Lyanna. Oh. And it's the emotional response we see from from Swan and probably even more so Lyanna right. after that. I, yeah. I love what that says about their respective characters. It's just, it's such a powerful moment. And of course, it's a, a moment of awesomeness for Nynaeve. And I, I do love Nynaeve, so that's always great to have in there. Yeah, yeah. My... Second favorite scene is Matt dancing with Betsy Sylvan in Mayron. Oh my goodness. That's chapter five, I want to say. A different dance? A different dance. Look so at me. Holy crap. Nice. I'm getting on Drew's nice. level now, everybody. Look. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I, it's one of those like quiet scenes that I just love the, the, the domesticity of. That okay. in this okay. huge series with all these epic battles and moments, Robert Jordan can also write a killer domestic scene. And it's also hilarious in, in turn and, and all that. Because it comes from um, that coffin. I, oh, I yeah, about that yeah. scene so good. Uh, and my favorite scene in the book is Rand establishing the Black Tower. Okay, so when he was making his little speech there and he was explaining mm -hmm. oh man, I, I still kind of cringing through that scene a little bit though just because it's like, it's kind of awkward. 
uh, and when he breaks out the pins, he breaks out the pins. And I, I, I love it because it it has that uh, subversion of expectation. You would you would think that him founding the Black Tower would be this like huge momentous occasion, right. but it ends up being again kind of a quiet scene. Like there's there's no legions of soldiers lined up. There are no trumpeters and drummers to make a proclamation. You know, it's just. Rand gets up, says a few words, and it's those humble beginnings of the Black Tower mm. that are going to be echoed in where the Black Tower is at the end of the series. And I think that makes a, a really strong counterpoint oh, in Lord yeah. of Chaos to how we finish up in A Memory of Light going into the fourth age. Oh, yeah. And I definitely want to piggyback on that. Um, as something I, I said last episode, I think it was in the Lord of Chaos Part 2, um, where... I'm 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 just loving the idea of, of of picturing somebody in the fourth age listening to these legends and how of course they're going to be twisted and changed and and magnified the the founding of the black tower and what somebody from the fourth age would say if they could theoretically go back in time and watch what really happened compared to the stories that they're going to be hearing and it turns just out a bunch that of it's farmers. just it's just a dude standing on the back of a wagon at a farm, bunch, you know, a uh, 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 crowd of, of dirty dudes in front of him that are all sweating profusely, a bunch of chickens scratching the dust around their ankles, you know, like, I just, I, I love the juxtaposition between what it's, what is going to be made about this event and what we actually got to see. It's, it is yeah. very, very quaint. I did like that, yeah. Yeah. So, I think that uh, takes us straight into the final draft. I think it does, my friends. Rob? Oh, you? <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay, so I've been really, really waiting to get this one out of the way for, for, for quite a few weeks now. I'm, pr I'm particularly Ooh. proud of this one, boys. I brought to the table today another IPA, and this one is a Tangerine IPA from Broadhead Brewing Company in Orléans, Ontario. And this okay. was a deliciously fresh, citrusy, citrusly sweet brand. Citrusy? Yeah, I'll go with citrusy. Sweet blend. Um, and when I bought it, I was thinking about Rand's new best friends, including Galena and Arion and all of the, oh, no. the eyes to die from the White Tower who sparked such an awesome relationship and the comfort of so many memories together going forward. This one oh, is no. called Tight Squeeze. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I did, ladies oh. and gentlemen. Yeah, I did. I did it. Bring it. Oh man, I have no words. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty much the reaction I was looking forward to. Yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Oh, Jared, uh, what do you got for us? <laughs> well, I can't really follow that up, but. I'm sticking with my theme of not having a theme. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have a New Belgium 1554. You've probably heard of it. I'm... New Belgium. We uh, had Lafouille yeah. on the first episode, didn't we? Uh, uh, we did. Did we? <laughs> and we had uh, Air on the Side of Awesome for uh, oh, yeah. Calamity, I believe. Uh, it was definitely in a Sanderson episode. It had to be during a Sanderson it was, episode. It yeah. was one of the Reckoner's books. It was either Firefight or uh, uh, Calamity, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I but, think yeah. they're ending this, actually. Oh, they better not be. I feel like... Oh? I know they're ending Abby. 
They better not be ending 1554. I, I, I will, I so will march on down the street to the New Belgium Brewery here in Fort Collins oh. and give them a piece of my mind. I feel that pretty beer confident. That is one of their absolute best. That I read it is this. their only good flagship beer. Uh, <laughs> let me just quick Google, Google this. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be furious. Um, oh. Sorry, Drew, you can. Uh, Talk about yours while I'm looking this up. But anyway, um, this is a pretty famous one from New Belgium. So, like, if you know anything by New Belgium, you probably know. 1554. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sweet. So, what I brought today is a beer from River North Brewery in Denver, Colorado. And I I have brought a River North beer on before. I brought their uh, barrel-aged Avarice on for one of our Foundry Side episodes. Uh, these guys do some of the best stouts and like strong ales in Colorado. And this is another stout. It's an Imperial stout brewed with coffee. It is 11.9%. Oh, oh so this wow. is a, oh. yeah, it packs a punch. It is delicious. Sweet malts, really roasty coffee notes. Uh, pretty, pretty, uh, drinkable though. Uh, definitely dry. Uh, dry finish on this, just altogether a really, really tasty beer. But as uh, as I was pushing for most of this episode about kind of the subtext of Lord of Chaos, this beer is called Nightmare Fuel. <laughs> oh, yeah, we talked about a lot of Nightmare Fuel in this episode, haven't we? We did. I think Kalima takes the cake with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, b- yeah. well, before we finish out the final draft, I do want to give an honorable mention to this brew that I was going originally to bring on. Um, I was at the supermarket about a month ago when we were first going to re- uh, record this particular episode of the podcast, and I found a New England IPA. It's, oddly enough, it's just called New England IPA, but it's the name of the brewery that caught my eye. And I was thinking about uh, Taim's epic final line when he gives his ultimatum to all of the eyes to die. Not making mm, any okay. kind of differentiation between the Tower Aes Sedai or the Rebel Aes Sedai. When he says, kneel Aes Sedai, or you will be knelt. This is from a brewery called The Exchange. <laughs> nice. So I was going to bring that one on, but then I saw this little ditty there called Tight Squeeze. And I was like, oh my god, I have to do that. That's just so wrong, I have oh. to. So, yeah. But honestly, yeah. as an aside though, The Exchange may be the best beer I've ever had in my life. Whoa! Wow! I have I have bought it four more times since then in the past <laughs> month. I went to a, a house party just like a couple weeks ago, and I brought like eighteen of these, and I was just handing them out because this is freaking delicious. The ABV on this one is seven point oh, so it's a little stronger as you know regular beers go. But the Exchange Brewery and their one called New England IPA, it is just so delicious. But still can't beat Very tight nice. squeeze though, can it? <laughs> no, it can't. That's that's so good. Yeah. That's one of the best. Uh, Thank you. Ever brought into the the podcast? <laughs> uh, uh, that like that's on a level with like Maiden's Kiss. Like yeah, well, I would say it's probably like on the level of like Fearless Youth. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Fearless Youth was really good yeah. too. Uh, it's pretty. But yeah. So that brings us to the end of our coverage of Lord of Chaos. Yeah, it uh, does. book six of. The Wheel of Time. Uh, this has been episode 44. Yep. And uh, next up, we will be going off 
kind of uh, <laughs> off the beaten path a little bit. <laughs> uh, we're going to be taking a one-week break from the Wheel of Time, and uh, this episode is actually going to be a little bit different. Uh, Rob is not on the next episode. Right. It's just uh, my wife Lauren and me. And we are covering Wraith Squadron by Aaron Alston. It is uh, a book in the X-Wing series of the old expanded universe, now the Star Wars Legends. So if you're a Star Wars fan, you definitely want to check that out. Uh, we're covering the whole book in one episode. It's a pretty short book, so it's uh, uh, short and sweet. What and if we want to start reading Star Wars? Is it a good one to listen to uh, and read along with? So... Uh, it is a good one to start with. Uh, if you really want to like do it right, you can start with Rogue Squadron and like the very first X-wing book, but you don't have to. Uh, Rogue Squadron was written; the first four books are written by a different author and tell a complete story. And then Race Squadron picks up like a new story. It just kind of like follows some of the same characters, uh, but not even most of the same characters; just like one major character. So it is a good one that you can start with, and and uh, very very good book. Um, so uh, that said, um, you know if you're if you're enjoying our content so far, uh, please check out our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/inkingoutloud. Uh, we're you know we're putting up short episodes. I think we're gonna have two or three short episode Patreon exclusives this month in uh, December. And, in fact, probably by the time you're hearing this, there will be uh, one or two of them up already. Uh, you can get access to those there. We have a monthly newsletter that you can check out. Uh, you can get early access to our weekly episodes. we got a bunch of fun benefits there. And all of our Patreon proceeds are going toward uh, Pat and Danny, who put in tons of hard work to make our episodes sound good and make our artwork look great. So, uh... Yeah, check that out if you want to support us uh, on Patreon. Otherwise, uh, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Jared Livingston. The Don, Jared Livingston. <laughs> Get it right. That's right. I don't know how you're going to remember each of these. Yeah. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. See you guys.